Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women's Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. I'm delighted to begin with the joyful announcement that this is our 100th episode of the podcast. We are thrilled to have achieved this podcast milestone, and we have an invitation for you to celebrate with us that I'll tell you about after I introduce our guests. So let me invite you into a conversation with Beth Birmingham and Ava Salinen Simard, authors of Creating Cultures of Belonging, Cultivating Organizations Where Women and Men Thrive. In this book, Ava and Beth explore the challenges that women frequently encounter in workplace cultures that inhibit personal flourishing, and then they offer a clear and systemic framework for transforming these cultures into places where people who feel marginalized can experience the kind of belonging that results in growth for individuals and the organization. Beth and Ava approach this topic with infectious energy and enthusiasm, and our conversation is full of very practical ideas for listeners like you. So let me tell you a little bit more about them. Beth Birmingham is an NGO leadership and organizational consultant, development researcher, trainer, and former tenured professor at Eastern University. Beth holds a PhD in leadership and change and an MBA in economic development, and she currently serves as a member of Wheaton's Consortium on Gender, Development, and Christianity. Ava Salonen Samard is the project director at Scope Project at World Relief and has more than 10 years of experience working with missional NGOs from research to ministry. Ava holds an MSc in International Politics from the University of Helsinki and an MBA from Johns Hopkins University, and she is a co-convener of the Wheaton Consortium for Development, Gender, and Christianity. Together, Beth and Ava are co-founders of BE Development Partners, a consulting firm that trains organizations to develop belonging cultures. And, good news, we have a special offer for you from InterVarsity Press, a code for 30% off of Beth and Ava's book when you pre-order it at ivpress.com. The book comes out on October 18th, but the discount is available between now and October 25th, 2022. Just enter the promo code WELL22, W-E-L-L-2-2, and I'll put this in the show notes as well. And as promised, before we share the interview, let me tell you about a way you could celebrate our 100th episode with us. We invite you to rate and review our podcast it will take a minor effort on your part, but rating and reviewing will help others to find our podcast. In fact, we already have one reviewer who states, I wish I had known about this earlier. 
how encouraging it is to hear from other people of faith in academia. When our team reads your reviews, we find a great deal of encouragement as we hear how this work has impacted your life. So I've included a couple of links in the show notes that describe how you can rate our podcast in just a few simple steps. And I'll remind you at the end of the episode as well. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I would love to start by hearing about your experience in the university world. Our listeners, as I think you know, are mostly women who are connected with academic life in one way or another. And so I'm interested in centering our conversation there. And I'd love for you to each tell us a bit about your background. Maybe Beth, would you like to begin? Sure. So I spent 22 years at Eastern University in Philadelphia first in administration, and then later as I finished my PhD, um, became a full-time professor, was tenured at some point. Um, But all those 22 years, the focus was on uh, leadership development for people who work in missional organizations, particularly um, faith-based NGOs, which um, as you saw in the book, we, we reference that quite a bit because that's our sphere so to speak and then I left in 2015 when the university did a restructuring um, and went to join an NGO in Colorado for a few years uh, continuing to do leadership development and culture development and then as my elderly mother uh, reached a point where I felt like I needed to be back in the Philadelphia area. So I returned in 2019 and have been consulting and continuing to part-time teach at Eastern University. Wonderful. That's great to hear. Ava, can you tell us a bit about your your background? Sure. So my experience with universities is more practical. I mean, it has Mm -hmm. to do with my own studies, um, both in Europe and then here in the U.S., But I did work for several years um, at Johns Hopkins University Mm -hmm. um, in the International Programs um, Division, um, Bloomberg School of Public Health, where uh, I've done a lot of program management. So I've peripherally worked with academics um, almost all of my career um, and um, in some of the research studies we do in international countries. So that's my experience. Ava, would you share what you're currently doing at World Relief? Because I think that's a really important project that you're working on and just the size of it is so significant. Yeah, so I currently also lead a um, kind of a big um, health project at World Relief. It's USAID funded. We work in six different countries with maternal and child health and COVID. Um, And so I'm what they call a chief of party, which is the, the, the main lead of all these teams that work Um, internationally across the world. Um, So that's a a huge privilege and uh, quite a robust um, project um, as we're we're receiving this funding from the U.S. government. So you have written a book together entitled Creating Cultures of Belonging, Cultivating Organizations Where Women and Men Thrive. And the the audience you have for your book is quite broad and it, it includes missional organizations all over the world. Um, And I think that your ideas are very useful for university settings as well, especially Christian colleges. So 
I'm curious to start by hearing a little bit about why you decided to write this book and why you decided to write it together. Can you talk about that? So I'll let Ava speak to her why, but I think both of us have worked in and around the missional sector. You know, for me, it's been about 25 years and have just um, heard the stories and spent time with women who um, weren't experiencing great workplace cultures that really uh, equipped them and acknowledged their value. And as we talk about in the book, there are many reasons for that. And so um, it started to become an area of my research for, I would say, the last five or six years. Uh, And out of that came a talk that we created for Christians for Biblical Equality, that Mm -hmm. um, organization, in 2019. And some folks from InterVarsity were in the room and said, we really need to turn these talks into a book. But Ava and I have been friends and work colleagues since 2012, when I was invited to be a consultant to help World Relief develop a leadership development program. Um, And so she and I worked together, I think, what, four or five years on that program, traveled in a number of countries around the world. Um, working with leaders who all are serving in uh, world relief. And so that's how we came to realize how much um, we have a shared vision for the, the kind of leadership that we need to see in missional organizations and also the kind of equipping that women need, the intentional development that women need to unleash them and prepare them mm-hmm. for when those opportunities arise to take take on those roles. Yeah, I think for me, um, there's a couple of different things that have ignited the passion around gender equality in our organizations. There's this famous feminist who said, women come to care about equality in their 40s. (laughs) When (laughs) when and it's I think it's especially true for women in the Christian context, because kind of uh, complementarianism and kind of the inequality in, in unequal way our structures are built work for us when we're younger women right because we're kind of cute and fun and we can still kind of navigate the system and kind of keep our blinders on that this is rigged um and then once you know once i had my kids and i realized like this system will not work at all. Like what's Mm -hmm. happening here will not serve me. Um, That's when I really started to care about it. And because I'm originally from Finland and I had grown up in a culture where a lot of these things have been attended to because of like just the strong, long history of equality that Finland has enjoyed. Mm -hmm. I knew I had an example in my head of what it could look like when women and men lead together. Um, And then the kind of the final thing is for me, you know, in my career, like mid thirties into where I am now, a little bit past mid thirties uh, <laughs> is, is kind of leaning, like realizing that I have to lean into my natural way of being as a leader 
to be successful, for, for it to resonate with people, for me to lead well, I have to become more of who I am. Mm. And more of who I am is actually a very feminine style of leadership. Um, it's a very caring, nurturing, loving kind of a leader. And I didn't want to erase that. I wanted to become more of that as I lead an inter international team. And I, um, I really wanted to find a way to bring more of that out. And I believe that is done in a, in a culture where both men and women can freely express who they truly are, are as God has created them. And she's raising such a good point there in her, because Ava and I are very different in our personality wiring. I think it's why we get along so well. <laughs> um, so I am a very masculine style leadership. And when I joined Eastern University in 1995, Roberta Hestinus, who was one of the first female presidents of Christian colleges in the United States, was the president. And seven of 11 of her vice presidents were women. So, and many of the theologians that work at Eastern and Palmer Seminary, what used to be Eastern Seminary, are egalitarian theologians. And so I never knew a culture that didn't value women. I do recall, however, the harsh critiques, comments in the hallways about Dr. Hestinus in that she had a very masculine leadership style. But again, as a leadership professor, I'm always cognizant of you can't separate leadership behaviors from the context. And I remember thinking when I looked at her and admired her, I can see the flecks of glass broken glass in her hair from the glass ceiling she has had to break through in her career to become a Christian university president in the 80s. Wow. Okay. But the phrase that was used is that she can be hell on heels. You know, she was not. She was the most delightful, warm, but she was decisive. She was a strong communicator. And so there again is that bias when you get those qualities from male leaders, they're championed as great, strong leaders, you know, the, the great man theory. But when it comes from women who are being themselves and their decisiveness and their strength and their, you know, um, you're critiqued as being, she's awfully harsh. Right. She's, you know, um, yeah, it's just a double standard that, you know, we're aware of. So I was raised in a household of men. Um, and learned at a very early age that, you know, it's a stiff up, British stiff upper lip and uh, seeing me cry is a sign of weakness. And so I learned early on, you better stand up to them and you better, you know, have your solid footing um, or you're going to be pushed around your whole life. You know, and it started with brothers, but then it moved into every other workspace. So again, Ava and I approached this differently, but we both want a space to belong. Yeah. with whatever leadership style we bring to the table yeah. and not have to spend our days as so many women do assessing who's in the room and figuring out what chameleon strategy we will have in order to blend in fit in and not ruffle anybody's feathers that is exhausting and yeah. we know in academia that you know there's a language for this emotional labor Mm. the emotional labor that uh, women often experience so but yeah that's what brought us to this book is wanting to know can there be a place for 
all of our different styles where we don't have to exhaust ourselves and overthink it, just be. Yeah. I appreciate hearing about your different leadership styles and your personalities and the way you complement each other. And it, um, it brings to mind one of the things I really appreciated about your book is um, the way you highlight the research that points to the increased effectiveness of organizations that prioritize women in leadership and make space for these different ways of women to express their leadership. And that it's not just an ethically important thing to do or um, politically correct or anything like that, but that it's really it's really about effectiveness and mission. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this was um, something that I had come to realize somewhere in the last five years. I've always been told that I'm an idealist. And so I often thought that the argument of it's the right thing to do should be strong enough. Mm -hmm. And you would think in the Christian world, it should really be strong enough. It's the biblical thing to do. It's the model of Jesus, you know. And that's not enough. Um, so what I found is that many an organizational leader, they weren't reading our academic scholarly papers on leadership and organizational culture. They're reading Harvard Business Review. Right. And they're reading McKinsey. And they're reading Gallup studies. And they're bringing in Gallup to figure out how to make us a more engaged university or a more engaged NGO. And so um, you'll notice in the different uh, solutions in the book, one of them is the strategic case. So if you have leaders at all levels that are reading these books from the corporate world, what does the corporate world have to tell us when it comes to research? And they're the ones who had you know, money to do this. So you've been following the McKinsey studies over the years. Um, I think the latest one is called Diversity Wins, and you can download it. And it says point blank, along with many academic papers that I have actually read, says point blank, when you have greater diversity of leadership around your organizational tables, you will see greater performance outcomes. Hmm. So it's appealing to the leader's self-interest in their own leadership because they know they have to achieve good performance outcomes to be hailed as a good leader and dare I say, to keep their roles. And so in the corporate world, it shows up as return on investment, return on equity. But wouldn't we as nonprofit organizations be able to apply that same principle? If diversity of leadership yields better performance outcomes, don't we want that? For our nonprofit organizations, mm -hmm. who, in my humble opinion, have the most important mission in the world, and that is for the social good of whatever you know um, their focus is. So that's one. The other element of this is that we know through diverse leadership, we see greater employee engagement. We see um, less turnover, higher levels of um, appreciation of their supervisors. And then the one that should be of concern to all of us is the focus of the millennial generation. They want to be part of organizations that have a culture of belonging. And if they are going to be 75% of our workforce in just a few short years, in the nonprofit space, we're about to witness a war for talent like we have never seen. 
And if we're in organizations that are monocultured, monogendered in their leadership ranks and in the organization as a whole, we're going to have a hard time recruiting the very best talent that's going to carry us into the next decade. And that should scare us all. That should scare us all. In the book, you, um, as you describe this culture of belonging, this belonging culture, you also identify a number of roadblocks that need to be overcome in order to create that culture. And you, you talk about theological understanding and organizational habits and practices. So um, I'm wondering, you know, thinking specifically about the academic world, what barriers do you see women encountering most frequently in the university? And Beth can speak more to these statistics because she's more more uh, versed in these. But you know, it's no secret that women are over fifty percent of those receiving higher education in our country. Mm-hmm. Yet the tenure track and the kind of who ends up leading and teaching and getting tenured in organizations is still you know. It, it, it's appalling the difference between how can this funnel of 55% be producing 7%, you know, like where do they all go? And that funnel like really interests us. Um, In Christian organizations, Christian universities, there's like unique obstacles. Uh, We talk about, you know, the theological background, the fact that we can't, we cannot get away from the reality that we're all socialized Many of us are socialized in a way that by the age of seven, we'll have adapted and kind of soaked in the roles that women and men should play. Mm -hmm. And that socialization comes to us through uh, the roles that women and sisters and aunts play in our families. Uh, If women are the ones serving and, and cooking and staying at home and caring, and we don't have a lot of role models of women who are in the workplace, that's something that's, you know, in, imprinted in our mindset. Um, and then the same goes to the pulpit. You know, many evangelicals still attend churches where women are not prom- prominently in the pulpit leading. They are not leading the church in with proper titles. They are not leading in proper decision making, even in elder boards. You know, those things are imprinted in the way we view women and men. So if you think about many of the you know, dear brothers, dear awesome brothers in this context, they, no matter how much they are wanting to move away from that mindset of women are here and men are here, there's different categories. We are all filled with that unconscious bias that we have adapted from growing up. And so if organizations don't make really intentional um, efforts and steps towards, uh, you know, in a practical way, erasing those things, we will never get anywhere. And theology will always block us that the kind of unconscious theology we've adapted. And then also, there's still a lot of uh, teaching in the university world. Uh, Reminds me of, you know, John Piper's recent (laughs) couple of years ago comment of, then it ceases to be theological education. If a woman is doing it, it ceases to be theological education, mm-hmm. you know. And if we have those kind of kind of um, leaders still expressing their views in our context, women will not get where they need to be. Um, so we we propose in our 
in our book that organizations really adapt a theological stance, that they understand the fact that they're gonna be having all people with all kinds of theological backgrounds walking through the front door of their organization. And some of it could be this very, very conservative theology. And if the organization does not make a stance of how will women be treated here, And how will we deal with women's leadership inside of these walls and make a statement and and kind of train their folks on that statement? Um, We will not get, because there's always going to be that one individual with a bias, no matter how far the organization would like to push itself. Um, So that's kind of a really, really important, um, important factor. I think another one would be just what I was sharing in the beginning about a little bit of my the own my own obstacles, like that there are still these systematic systemic obstacles for women who do desire to become um, either mothers or do end up becoming caregivers at some stage of their lives that we don't really have policies and practices in place for accommodate for that. Yeah. And I think that's behind that's driving these tenure track numbers that women do have to step outside and they do have these seasons in their life where research and paper writing and this is not the number one thing. So how do we accommodate for people with different life circumstances and still make a way for them to get through that pipeline into the top levels of education and leadership. So I think that's something that we really elevate in our in our book and research is um, creating systems where women can achieve the same amount um, as men do. Yeah. Uh, and without those systems, it's just, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, academia is facing such a major um, long overdue overhaul in the coming decade, purely because of the numbers. You know, when we look at the generational numbers, there's not, as, there's not going to be as many undergrad students entering you know, the university system to be able to support all the universities that exist across the country. You know, last check was 4,200 colleges and universities. So we absolutely need to rethink about what the academic career looks like and accommodate a much more varied career passing for women and men, um, so that you know, tenure doesn't isn't necessarily just judged on how many peer-reviewed journal articles, but other forms of um, disseminating knowledge that are probably m- more valued by a broader audience than um, all those organizations that can't afford to (laughs) subscribe to the journals (laughs) where we are required to publish in order to get tenure. I mean, it's such a silly catch-22. Yeah, just really rethinking what can an esteemed career in academia look like for women who want to be half-time home with their children or are taking time out. Um, And I think there are some places that are doing this well already. So it is a topic of conversation. The second one is, again, not constantly looking for women to be that role. Um, How many of our universities are making space, not just saying we have paternity leave, but encouraging slash insisting that men take it Mm. as a model to show that you can have your career and also be a very prominent father role in your families and you know the child development 
listeners that you have are going to love the fact that we know the research of the positive imprint on children when fathers are there in those earliest years. So if we know this in our academic research lives, why are we not building it into our academic organizational existence uh, to affirm all these good things that we know? And yeah, yeah. And then the reality that you know, the boomer generation as it's aging, we are all finding ourselves in that place of not only caring for children, but caring for our parents. Mm -hmm. um, and there are very practical, simple ways that organizations can do this, but it takes a whole uh, systems approach, which we'll talk about in a second, um, as to how you, you lean on your organization and, and lean on each other for new ideas and fresh approaches. Um, you know, the idea of load sheets and the number of credits you're required to teach and, you know, creating different um, faculty categories between the full-time and the part-time and the adjunct, you know, surely there are more opportunities and more ways to rethink the way we show up at work. I wanted to ask too about um, how COVID has impacted your thoughts on all of this. I mean, you, I think you were writing during the pandemic. Um, you certainly were developing these ideas during the pandemic. And I'm wondering how, how you needed to kind of shift things around to adjust to our changing world. One of our, yeah, <laughs> we don't recommend writing a positive forward thinking book in the middle of the end of the world coming at you. <laughs> so, and that's what COVID at times felt like we didn't mm -hmm. know. But one thing that struck me so funny, my mantra at my last organization, the NGO I worked at, was trying to help them diversify leadership. And my mantra was, let leaders live anywhere. Here's mm -hmm. a global organization that why on earth do you need to have the people you know based in the United States um, when we're a global organization and we're already operating 24-7 and have all the tech systems in place? So let leaders live anywhere. And that was sort of dismissed. No, no, no. It's so important that we build the culture in our building, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and then COVID hit. Right, right. <laughs> and so I sat back, chuckled, and felt a little arrogant in my, see, <laughs> I told you this could work, you know. And so now we're finding organizations all around the world realizing, wow, look at the hiring pool this has just opened up to us when we allow people to live anywhere. Mm -hmm. It also bodes well for leadership because leaders know that when you trust people to do their roles, um, you get better performance out of people. Nobody wants to be micromanaged. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that you can't be peering over somebody's desk all day to make sure they're doing their job, you know, is actually a very good thing in the long run for organization culture. Go ahead, Ava, you had some thoughts on us writing. writing yeah, <laughs> yeah, one of the, yeah, we, one of the things was like, you know, we were, it was started this right before COVID, then it kicked, the whole reality of it kicked in, and you're just like in the middle of it, and I think along with everyone thinking like, well, how will it be when we come out of it, like, how will our life, and so quickly, like a couple of months into it, it's like, will women, you know, will women still do the, all the care work and will women still be burdened? Yes, they will. Yeah. And, and then some, and then some, right? Like the pre-existing condition of women's, 
women's uh, lives. It's there and, and you add a COVID and you just look at the global stats and you're like, what was a really bad case for many women uh, got a whole lot worse. Mm-hmm. And I think the urgency of solving for some of these issues became so much more evident and visible. And I hope our organizational leaders really started to see it, that it's not just hidden away in people's homes, but it's in the newspaper and it's everywhere. It's among your staff. Like women are really carrying the care burdens of our of our community, our societies, mm-hmm. and we need organizational solutions to support women in the workplace. Yeah. Like there's no getting away from that. Well, let's talk about your framework. You really um, suggest uh, some practical ideas in your book um, and you, you describe a path that isn't really about demonizing or excluding men, but instead about changing our systems. And you have this really helpful diagram in your book that that illustrates the process. And there are six spokes that include things from HR policy to theological grounding to leadership commitment. And so I would just love for you to tell us a little bit more about about this framework. Sure, no problem. Yeah, well, and I think this came from years and years of both of us watching this idea of gender equality pops up on the missional organization, the missional sector every five years or so. more recently, the Me Too movement really put it prominent. Um, and so organizations rush to make a public statement um, and they probably spend more time on lawyer fees and our communication staff time and executive team time on making a public statement than they actually do on solving the issue within their organizations. And part of it's you know, the tyranny of the urgent And part of it's they don't really know how to approach it. And so what you wind up finding is let's put everybody through bias training is one solution. Right. Where the second one is let's hire a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. And that will calm everybody down. The challenge with that is those positions are often no real power, um, still reporting to the same executive that leads an organization that isn't a belonging culture and no resource to really do what their job needs them to do. And so the reason we said, you know, there are so many aspects to the system that gets us to where we are now, uh, places of inequality, that it is a systemic issue that needs a systems approach. So as you noted, you know, in the book, we start with the Imago Dei. Um, And this is both men and women claiming their healthy identity in Christ that allows them to recognize that creating cultures of belonging in our organizations means that we are actually reflecting the kingdom of God, which is the inherent understanding of the purpose of faith-based organizations. So how can we be pointing people to the kingdom if what we model inside looks nothing like it? You know, it's a complete contradiction um, when we do that. So we start with the Imago Dei and what it means to uh, truly claim our identity as the ones created in God's image. And that, you know, I call that healthy leadership, the healthy leadership model. The second one um, that we talk about is making the strategic case. 
And that's what I had just referenced before about why we included so much research and data from other sectors is the fact that it proves when you have greater diversity uh, in your organization and in its leadership tables, you will see better performance outcomes. And that, that seems to be the one that always you know, um, piques the interest of NGO or um, nonprofit leaders. As soon as you start talking better performance, you know, this is no longer simply a nice to have for our organizations. This is now at the point where it is a strategic necessity to be creating cultures of belonging. And then we go through the realities of organizational culture. There are many things that go on within the organization that point to a very masculine um, culture that needs to be rethought in order to make spaces for people who look very different than our majority now. Uh, HR policies and practices, Ava just touched on a few like maternity leave, paternity leave, elder care. There's a whole bunch of different practices. How we decide on promotion, how we decide on raises, where we invest our staff development dollars. And that leads us to the next one, which is intentional development. We know from corporate research, most of leadership development dollars go um, disproportionately to male leaders in organizations and disproportionately to the people that are already at the top of the chart. And I kind of consider those a little bit further along in the baked category. So why are we investing in the people who've already achieved the vice president level for lots of you know, expensive leadership development programs where we absolutely need to be targeting our junior early level uh, folks, particularly women, to get them on that first rung of the ladder. You know, so just examine where do our leadership development dollars go? You know, and, and we speak in the book about ways in uh, doing more intentional development for women, not to get them to lead like a man, but to get them to the point where they are leading and valuing their own leadership styles so that when we are making spaces in our organizations, um, they, they are prepared and ready to step into them. But it also speaks to the type of intentional development that the entire organization needs to recognize uh, its biased culture, not just biased individuals, but its biased culture. And then lastly, in, in all of these things that we talk about is leadership will. You can be fixing all these other areas or trying to nibble and, and address all these other areas. But if you don't have leadership will, what I call you know, courageous leadership for creating a culture of belonging, it probably won't happen. Mm -hmm. It probably won't happen. And so I think about, you know, when I first uh, came to Eastern, about six years in, we got a new president. And he really, um, it grieved him how much that we were a university so close to the beautiful city of Philadelphia and all of its diversity, 92 countries are represented in the Philadelphia community. And here we have this university, Christian university that didn't reflect that. Mm -hmm. And so he set out a goal that made him incredibly unpopular with some. For five years, he would not sign a faculty contract for anyone that looked like him, white, wow. <laughs> male, 50 something, you know. And you can imagine, you know, um, 
the upheaval and the you know torment that that had for some people. People claimed, well, in our field, we can't find women and we can't find our colleagues of color. And in our, you know, and, it, and it was it was not true. We just hadn't tried. Mm-hmm. And so we examined the places where we were throwing our recruiting nets and, you know, again, all those HR procedures only to find within five years, our percentages of diversity were very close to the Philadelphia, greater Philadelphia area. Now, mind you, Eastern had always been an egalitarian university. Mm -hmm. And so women have always been uh, a wonderful, beautiful leadership presence. And I'm not talking token um, presence, but but a significant equal role. Um, Doesn't make it perfect, you know, in any stretch of the imagination. But without his will to say, we must change for the way forward if we want to to genuinely claim to be a kingdom organization, then we've got to be reflecting that kingdom table far better. And when I listen to organizational leaders today, I find the number one thing that holds them back is their fear-filled leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, because number one, the first question is, what about me? What does this mean for my role? If I have to make space and change the culture to accommodate someone else that doesn't look like me. And so self-interest always plays you know, a big part. The second really big one especially for missional organizations, is I don't want to ruffle the feathers of our um, conservative donors and our conservative board members. Now think about the messaging that's inherent in that. Number one, a lack of trust that the the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills isn't going to be there to help you out (laughs) when you step out in faith. But number two, you're willing to not want to ruffle the feathers of a handful of conservative donors, but you are willing to deny the Imago day of 50% of your workforce. Tell me how any of that is a kingdom ideology. Mm-hmm. So leadership courage is what is needed most and and we call it leadership will in the book the will to say now is the time because i think far too many of our universities and far too many of our missional organizations have a very distorted concept of legacy Hmm. nobody's going to remember how much you grew the university because in another 10 years it's going to retract (laughs) nobody's going to remember how brilliantly you handled this disaster in asia because there's another one right around the corner. Nobody's gonna remember how much you grew the endowment because with the next big financial shakedown and you know they come in cycles, you're gonna be back in financial trouble again. Nobody's gonna remember that legacy, Mm -hmm. but they will if you choose this day to say, we are going to create a culture of belonging in this organization that will change the face of this organization and the way it functions for generations to come. That is a legacy you cannot lose. But it calls you to have faith and to step out in courage, understanding the strategic case, 
to make a difference for your organization for, for generations to come. Yeah. Did you want to add anything, Ava? That was a wonderful summary. And no, that was like a mic drop. It was. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> I get very passionate on that topic of the systems approach. It was good. I was moved. I was very moved. <laughs> that was wonderful. it's such it's such a beautiful vision that you have for the future and um i would love to talk about how our listeners can apply this to their lives so a lot of our listeners are embedded in their institution's culture as graduate students or faculty and they may or may not feel that they have a great deal of influence and so how can a woman who is employed or participating in the system that needs to be revitalized how can a woman like that work for change how do you how do you break it down for someone on on a lower leadership level yeah i mean i think women we have to understand how much we've been trained to perfection um and especially i think you know women who aspire to be in a professional academic sector they're already going to be like, you know, just primed to, to look to be perfect. There's just like, a, it, and by perfect, I mean, get it right, get their research right, get the straight A's, get the things right. And then these things happen in your life when it's no longer possible to control all the things. And I think there's an expectation as a, a woman is still a marginalized worker as is a person of color, there's an expectation of marginalized workers that they have to show show up twice as hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this famous quote by Madeleine Albright, like, if you're a woman at the table, you better be sure that you're 10 times as good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an expectation of women, you have to be perfect. And so I think part of that is we need to retrain those around us that it's just not going to be perfect. We need to retrain ourselves mm-hmm. um, that uh, imperfection is acceptable. Um, and let me tell you, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Men do it all the time. Men show up in imperfect ways all the time and no one notice, notices because they have this like little boost of, of being a man and there's an expectation and there's like a little bit of a halo effect around men. And women, women just need to accept the fact that it's just not going to be perfect. Um, I wrote recently, um, we wrote recently a blog post on quiet quitting, which mm-hmm. is this trend phenomenon now all over social media where um, people are kind of checking out and they're saying, I'm going to do the bare minimum at this job. I'm going to do what it takes, but I'm not going to put in the extra effort. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be the the all in all, which women often are. They're just the the hardest worker in the room. Right. And, and um, we, we got behind that because in our book, we, we echo this idea of like showing up at, at less than 100%. We talked to this woman, Marsha, um, who had kind of made up this 70% rule for herself. And she had just she had just said, you know, I'm gonna do everything I, I can and I have to get to at 70%. If I expect myself to show up into everything at 100%, I will burn myself out and I will not end up being a mom to these kids and a boss to these people and all of the things that are needed of me. And part of that, is you know training your manager 
at the 70%. And, and it means having like very defined expectations around your work. You know, you, you demand to know of your manager, how are you measuring my success? What are the metrics my performance is being uh, measured against? If there's this constant expectation of surprising performance or going above and beyond, that becomes unsustainable. So uh, I think I think for us as women and the way I lead my team, I, I, I you know what are your what are your measures of success in this work, and and then you 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 aim to work at a good performance to do, to the, towards those things. And I think that eliminates a lot of that expectation to be the greatest worker in the room and the hardest worker and the one who knows everything and the one who shows up and brings the coffee cups into the room and takes the notes and also contributes and all of those things that women can show up at. at the, but really like, okay, I have this minimum standard for myself of how mm -hmm. I'm showing up. And I, I know for, for women, that's really hard because we have not been socialized that way. I have a, I have a daughter in, in the eighth grade and the expectations on herself she has to get an A are enormous. Yeah. And, and as a mom, it's really hard for me to say like, it's okay for you to get a B or a C plus. It's <laughs> like how, what kind of, it's insane right. that I would say that, but I'm like, that's what it means. That's what it takes. It takes that I tell my daughter that it's okay if you get a B, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, go ahead, Beth. Well, I'm, I'm laughing because last week I was teaching my doctoral class and it was our you know early semester stuff and they're all uh, brand new to the program. And I said, you need to be comfortable with bees. And they look horrified because here's the <laughs> professor, professor telling them you don't need to get every point. And I just reminded them at the end of the day, nobody ever asks you your GPA. They ask you, what was your dissertation in? You know, what did you, what did you study? And so I said, in order to keep your marriage, these are all working professionals getting a PhD in organizational leadership from Eastern, you know, and I said, in order to keep your relationships healthy, your, you know, marriage is healthy, your role with your children, your, you know, you need to look and see where are the points in the syllabus that I can just ignore. Oh, I'm not going to participate in an online discussion this week. I'll lose those five points. And that has to be okay, mm -hmm. no. Um, and I would say that for all students, you know, we need to um, find that place where we're able to keep that balance and keep that perspective. But you raise a good question about how might we influence our organizations if we don't feel like we have influence. And that's where, you know, I think people don't recognize in, let's take a university setting, you know, your grad students, your undergrad students are your customers. They have influence. If they want to see better diversity in their teacher lineup, you know, when they join together and they raise that to deans and to provosts, um, that can be heard, you know, and in, in a sense, they vote with their, their customer dollars. And so if they find that they get to a university that doesn't know how to teach diverse um, perspectives, Perspectives, that all the textbooks come from white Westerners um, and that they're not being exposed to global thinkers on any topic, you know, um, you, can, you can join together and start to uh, expect and request that be changed. When it comes to faculty, you know, I know 
people will get very prickly that they're saying I'm trying to unionize faculty. I'm really not. <laughs> but we do have power in numbers. I do come from, my dad was a carpenter. He was a union organizer. So I come from good working class folk who like to, you know, ban our union voices together. But um, having constructive conversations, getting our book, buy our book, mm-hmm. join together with a group of eight to 10 other faculty colleagues, and talk about, do we have the belonging culture where not only we as faculty feel like a sense of belonging, but do our students feel like this is a place that they can belong? Um, because again, with the, the concerns facing you know, university numbers for the, the coming decade, we do need to be worried about making sure that our spaces are the most welcoming uh, spaces and you wind up getting much richer learning experience for both professor and student when you create those spaces. So there's very practical things in the university system that can be looked at. And, and I'm going to go out on a limb and assume so many university administrators really do care about this stuff. Yeah. They just may not know where to begin. Mm-hmm. And so our book really is a roadmap because Ava and I ultimately, even though we talk well, like, even though I speak in very broad generalities and big vision, the book really is very practical. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll add one more thing. Like there is such a thing as, and I'm not like, you know, everyone quit your, but there is such a thing. And I've had this experience personally, in my career where like I have not flourished in a place and it's been a long season of like not flourishing and and then it becomes kind of your internal language right like you start to think that there's something wrong with me because mm-hmm. i'm not flourishing here and all these other people are right and i'm wrong and i think before it gets to that there is such a thing as just you know shaking the dust off your souls and just moving on because it's like often around the corner, there's a place where you will flourish. And this is my testimony where like, I've gotten to be under a leader who really empowers me, who sees my strengths. And then all of a sudden I'm like a brand new person because I'm just in an environment where people see my value. So sometimes there's just irredeemable things about the environment people are in. And if they're feeling constantly like they cannot get ahead, like that's an option. And I think- women have to consider that option as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even that's a practical suggestion, you know, Mm -hmm. why isn't tenure um, years and tenure status portable? You know, can you take Mm -hmm. it from one place to another if you're in a a space that doesn't value you or has you serving on nine committees while also teaching five uh, courses a semester and none of them are the same course they're five course prep <laughs> you know and this uh, this is what I hear from some of my colleagues you know the reality that they're under um, I was always in a space that I would negotiate to not have that reality <laughs> just you know but that's not always the case mm-hmm. that's not always the case so as we wrap up I I was wanting to um, ask about this one particular thing in your book, um, you talk about Beth, you talk about when you're, when you're a coach, when you're coaching people that you have a habit, um, in which you ask people to remember, um, their belovedness by God. And it seems like it's really connected with this, um, thread that has gone, come through our whole conversation about, 
understanding your own leadership style and gifts as a woman and um, being able to lean into the way that God has uniquely gifted each one of us. Um, So I'm wondering if you can talk about this belovedness and how does the knowledge of our belovedness by God impact our, the day-to-day work that we do? Yeah. Well, it seems to be the, when bringing a conversation to that focus, it does bring tears to people's eyes because Mm. they know it intellectually. It hasn't embedded itself in their heart. Um, And so while you know it intellectually, you're still constantly seeking, as Ava just talked about, seeking the approval, seeking to be enough, you know. Um, And that just contradicts our identities in Christ. There's a song. um, Have you ever seen The Greatest Showman, the musical? There's a song in there that that uses the words never enough. Never, never. I won't sing because I can't sing. But never enough and it's funny because I reached a point in the past year or two where I was doing on some project and that song kept playing in my head Hmm. no matter how much I had achieved there was still this vast amount of things to do you know or I'd reached a milestone and then suddenly the goalpost moved and I think we can all relate to that Um, no matter how much time and support and professional expertise and list of publications and care that we give to our children and our parents and care that we give to our students and the committees we serve on and we go that extra mile. It just always feels like the goalpost eludes us. Mm -hmm. And there's two reasons going on for that. Number one, sometimes somebody else is moving the goalpost and women do find this a lot. They achieve the same, you know, great goals that others in their organization have been applauded for. But then someone says, but you really should do this as well, you know, and so we move the goalpost on them so that they never um, are quite ready for that next promotion. They're never quite ready for that, you know, expanded leadership role. Um, But a lot of it is our own wiring. And it's our own forgetting that we are already God's beloved. Hmm. Um, We still act like we're trying to earn that status and forgetting that God has already called us beloved. There is no striving needed. There's no report card coming our way. There's no family judgment coming our way. And it's from that place of a healthy identity as God's beloved that we can actually bring that to our workplaces, to the people that we serve and have been entrusted to steward, to our families, you know. Um, And it's why so much, and Ava and I together, we first met on a leadership development project. We don't do leadership development without spiritual formation Mm -hmm. as the cornerstone of the work. Because so much of leader identity and leader behavior is rooted in whether they have fully claimed their belovedness in the eyes of God. Yeah. Thank you for that. And um, I want to make sure that people know how to, how to find you and follow your new work. We'll certainly link 
um, in the show notes to the book and to that article that you wrote together about quietly quitting. Um, but how else, what, what else do you have coming up in the future? How can people watch for your work? Mm-hmm. Um, we will be speaking at a different couple of different conferences, um, at a court conference and at the justice conference, um, this, um, this fall, um, you can follow us on Instagram and we'd love to have you follow. And, um, we, we put some stuff up there and then there's this really exciting, um, activity that, uh, we've been working on this year. Um, it's called the Christian Alliance for Inclusive Development. Hmm. And it's, uh, for women who are working either in the development sector, but also any, um, any Christian organization where they identify as they love Jesus and they want to see a change in our world. And um, we've created a, um, a platform and um, and it's Beth is spearheading this, um, but um, many of us are involved and it's an exciting opportunity for women to really um, get peer encouragement. Um, if they're going through things, there's going to be a lot of research researchers uh, around training, et cetera, but also just that peer connection with a lot of the other women working in the sector. Um, so I think that would be a great place for your listeners to get tapped into. What is the website for that, Beth? So it's called thewelcomingtable.org. Okay. And we use the table as the metaphor for the Christian Alliance for Inclusive Development, because the table has been a space that has often left women and our women, uh, colleagues of color and women of color out. And then the other one is we have a website for our um, consulting work that we do. I use it more, um, but it's where our blog is. So uh, bedevelopmentpartners.com, bedevelopmentpartners.com. And so that's where we do a lot of our blogging and then posting those out from there to LinkedIn. So we're not the greatest at social self-promotion because, yeah, it's a love-hate relationship. It can be complicated, but yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll be sure to add um, those links into the show notes and um, so you. that people can find you. Thank, Thank you. What a delight to feature the work of Beth and Ava for our 100th podcast episode. We hope that you can take a moment to celebrate with us by leaving a rating and review so that others can find and enjoy the podcast. I've left a link with some instructions in our show notes for those of you who might need a few tips. And let me also take this opportunity to give a shout out to Caroline, our previous podcast host who produced the bulk of these episodes, plus our whole team at Women Scholars and Professionals for all their support and encouragement. And the biggest thank you of all goes out to you, our listeners. We're so glad you're with us. Remember the discount for Beth and Ava's book available at ivypress.com with the code WELL22. And if you listen all the way to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our conversation where Beth and Ava share some practical strategies they have used to balance caregiving duties with their careers. The Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. 
You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my interview with Beth and Ava as they talk about practical strategies around caregiving. I'm curious to know about um, the systems or habits or frameworks that you have right now for your own caregiving responsibilities. Ava, I know that you have school-aged children, as do I. And Beth, you mentioned um, you have an elderly mother um, in your world. And so I'm curious to know what that looks like for you, how, what, what kinds of support, things like that. Well, um, for me, uh, it, it's really, it's really uh, having an approach of, I've trained my family well of, of um, it, that it's not gonna look perfect all the time. And mm-hmm. so we just kind of, we just get through it. Um, and, and they're really gracious about that. Um, I think, okay, so let me say this. I think there's a big expectation on American moms that doesn't exist in other parts of the world, especially mm-hmm. Europe. Like there's this really big expectations on women's time in the US um, through the school system and through the different hobbies that, that um, the kids here are a part of that is not the reality of the rest of the world. And and I think I've really brought my finishness into being a mom in the US and the kids get what they get. And I don't, I don't do all the things. I don't do PTA. I don't volunteer. I'm not a school mom. I don't do any of those things because to me, it's, it's, it's almost like this political statement. Like there's an expectation on my time and I am a full-time employee. I cannot give full-time you, plus. you know, <laughs> you work more than 40 hours a week for world relief. Yeah. So it's full-time so it's just, plus. It's just, but I just want like, American moms listening to this, to hear that what you guys do in this country is not the standard for the rest of the world. (laughs) Like anywhere in the world, this is the only place where I've encountered this. It's crazy. So that's my, I don't know if that's helpful at all. That is, I mean, no, that is, this is information that we need to hear. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I think she has so much wisdom on motherhood. Um, and our kids are really great. I mean, they're, they're really, you know, they seem to be very healthy, well-adjusted, you know, but Ava's not the helicopter mama. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah, so um, my family, um, I have, I had three older brothers. One passed away a few weeks ago. Um, so we went from the four of us on Team Ruthie, <laughs> taking care of my elder mom to now three of us. So we're going through an adjustment period. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the only daughter and um, you know, single, I think there was always an assumption that I would become the full-time caregiver, but I've also had two careers always going simultaneously and can't do that, you know? Mm-hmm. So we together got together and took all the areas of need to care for mom so that she can stay in her own home that my dad built her Um, and divvied them up among us. And that has worked out very well. We're not a, you know, 
we're like every other family with its you know challenges and relationship challenges but when it comes to caregiving for mom we've all stepped up i do think if any one of us moved in with her and became full-time care that would start to dismantle yeah and so the reason i wanted it to be uh, an equally shared is that you know she's equally all of our mothers <laughs> um now we all live locally as well so that makes that uh, a possibility but um and my mom's, you know, happy as a clam with it because she loves her house and she loves her routine. And But yeah, it's not without its challenges. But I think for women who often feel guilted into becoming uh, the primary caregiver, you know, the point at which you do need to recognize you're one of multiple children and everybody needs to have a stake in mom, you know, mom or dad's care. Um, and it makes us just such better, healthier people when we go and, you know, spend time in, in relationship with her. And we all are there two days a week, you know, so we even divide up the calendar. Wow. Um, and it works well. It works well. My brothers are awesome, you know, in their love for their mama uh, and being there for, you know, their respective pieces of mm -hmm. taking care of her. So 